You're listening to The DAP Project. I am your co-host, Rhonda Elizabeth. And I am your co-host, Aaron Stallworth. This week, we're bringing to our podcast our March Book Talk, which we held on IG, IG Live, that is. In case you missed it, The DAP Project has a book club called TDP Be Reading. Our book club is another space to explore the people and ideas that we discuss in our podcast. Education, politics, family, justice, culture, and Aaron wants to talk about ratchet things. We read classics like The Miseducation of the Negro and new contributions to the canon, like the one you're going to hear today, The Purpose of Power. Not much ratchetness there. Great book and book talk. TDPB reading also provides my needed motivation for meeting my reading goals because the struggle is real sometimes. <laughs> oh, the struggle. However, we have been winning. We've had three book talks this year on Instagram, and we are right proud of ourselves. We recognize that not everyone is on the gram. So to expand access, we're sharing our book talks here on the DEP Project Podcast. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please join us for this month's book selection, Breathe, A Letter to My Sons by Imani Perry. The book talk will be on IG Live Sunday, May 23rd at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Special guests are joining us, and it will be a fantastic conversation. Fantastic. And maybe a little lit, and maybe a little ratchet. We've dropped some of our favorite independent bookstores in the show notes that we hope you will support. Remember to subscribe to our newsletter at thedepproject.com and leave us a review, five stars on Apple Podcasts. Those five stars, really, they really make Aaron happy. Resistance is a highway with many lanes. We hope you will find yours. Take care, folks. Our book talk today is um, on The Purpose of Power by Alicia Garza. So let's just give a few words of introduction about who Alicia Garza is. Most people know who she is. Well, I won't say most. I would say that she definitely has um, had many opportunities to introduce herself to to the public um, years after her her triumphant moment of introducing uh, Black Lives Matter. But before then, she's a native of California, grew up in the Bay Area, and she's actually been an organizer for 20 years. Even though she's becoming a household name, like in the last seven to 10 years, she had been doing community organizing, and I assume was really well known in the Bay Area for mm-hmm. many, many years before that. And some of her early organizing work has been um, involving affordable housing, community development, um, tenants' rights, domestic workers, like a variety of campaigns. Mm -hmm. So in other words, she is not new to this, but she is true to this. And when I read that about her, I was really not surprised, but I just didn't know that she had that depth of background in organizing and in movement work in California. Right. I, too, was... Amazed, you know, she has the uh, chapter in her book, Platforms and, what, what is the, the title of it? But she talks about platforms and, you know, I think of the three women who started the Black Lives Matter movement and I think about the platform that they have as individuals, but I still mainly think about the Black Lives Matter movement before I think about the people who started it. Mm-hmm. And the fact that those three women have long and extensive histories of organizing and bringing things to pass and um, 
just by chance and by preparation and by hard work, Black Lives Matter does become a, a true national and international movement. Um, but I was very impressed too by her long and extensive and amazing track record, which is which what it takes. You know, I, I, I briefly stated that uh, or, or thought about how we live in like these microwave age. We want everything right now. Uh, we want to we want to be influencers. We want to immediately think of something and we want it to catch fire and go viral. But that's not how movements work. Generally, that's not how the world works. And it was just so cool. Um, not even cool, but just so intriguing to see that that's exactly what happened with Black Lives Matter. It's something that was building uh, for years with with Alicia Garza and for decades with other people who were pushing pushing along the movement uh, in one way or another. So. Yeah, that's a really important point that she makes in her work is that uh, people ask her, how can I start a movement? And you have to really think about, do you want to start a movement or do you want to build power with people? Um, before we get to that part, though, why was this a great book for us to read as the DAP project? Well, DAP, as we know, and we've talked about many times on the podcast and over this year plus amount of time that we, that, that when you first brought the idea of, of the DAP project to me, it stands for dignity and pride. And to really have pride for yourself and to really feel dignified, you have to know your history. You have to know what's, and as an oppressed people and as marginalized people, we have to know, we have to have power somewhere. Mm -hmm. And and with this book, Purpose of Power, with our project, the DAP project, uh, that power and what DAP stands for has to intersect. Mm -hmm. And I think with this book and all that I learned from the book and the work of Alicia Garza and the people that, that she's worked alongside for decades um, perfectly matches up with what we believe DAP is all about. Mm -hmm. as we call it, uh, and, and what dignity and pride is all about. What about I you, Ron? From that, from that angle, um, mm -hmm. so I appreciate that um, that perspective. I had thought about another thing that we talk about a lot on the DAP mm -hmm. project, which is the personal is political and the political is personal, that a person's upbringing, the way that they were raised, the values that they had in the home, mm -hmm. but also the contradictions that they um, that they see in the world really influence how they operate and the choices that they make and how they um, their life trajectory the way that they decide to invest a lot of their time and so for Garza she explains that early on she saw that people weren't getting what they needed that black people in particular weren't getting what they needed to live full lives and then she also realized that there was something that she could do about it I think that's a really pivotal um, moment and a really important discovery to make about yourself. And right. so, you know, to bring it back to to death, um, when you say, I see you, and you're saying to someone else, I see you, you're really saying, I see your experience. Mm -hmm. And so I think Garza is saying, I see your experience because we have a similar experience. It may not be exactly the same. But right but it's very similar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I like how she brought out a few times throughout the book how she she feels like she lived, and she did, and, you know, respectively, 
a, a privileged life of sorts, uh, considering the neighborhood she grew up in, uh, the, the quote-unquote class that her parents was, were able to, to live within. Um, but she is still able to see those who she's working for, and, and, it's, and essentially she's working for herself and for black people and for all marginalized people. So. Yeah, I thought um, I thought that scene where she says she got uh, she and her friend were having what seems like a quintessential California moment for either teens or old people, whoever enjoys it, um, of sitting in the car smoking with the windows like all the way up, but just like chilling yeah. out, you know, living life, taking it easy. And then the police knock on the window and she's reluctant to roll the window down because naturally all the smoke is going to escape. Mm -hmm. And then they have this conversation about uh, the police officer says, oh, how's your like right arm or something? Because he knew her. She's mm -hmm. like, oh, it's good. And she just sweet talked her way out of any sort of like citation or whatever the um, the standard punishment is for that kind of, I won't call mm -hmm. it a crime, but for what it was right. that she was doing. And how different that experience is for um, that it was for her, for so many other people. Right. They they found a pound of um, she. There was a pound of marijuana <laughs> up under her seat, <laughs> and because the police officer saw her address and knew because of that zip code that um, this is a certain class of people. Mm -hmm. um, all I'm going to make you do. Uh, presenting as a black girl, and I'm, I'm not sure what they said the race of the other woman, uh, girl was. I think it may have been white. Yeah, I think uh, she was All she had to do was toss the uh, pipe that she was smoking the marijuana with, gave the pound of marijuana back to her, and yeah. said, go on about your merry way, sit here for a minute and sober up, yeah. and go about your merry way. So that ex to, for her to have had that experience, mm -hmm. and to be able to see on television and have cousins and friends and family members, uh, mm -hmm. and cousins, <laughs> that um, are not getting that same treatment. Mm -hmm. um, I can see how that could spark a fire because I think you want fairness. I, mean, I think some people live in a world where they want privilege, but I think most people live in a world where they want fairness, and Alicia definitely want, wants fairness, and that, that is a big piece of what she's fighting for. So that's something that I would ask her about, that in that moment, um, what did she... What did she learn about herself? Did she gain any confidence in her own voice because mm -hmm. she was able to um, navigate that situation in a way that um, ended up, one, it being harmless, and that the response from the officer was equal to the depth of the, um, it wasn't even a crime, but there was like an appropriate response to the situation in mm -hmm. front of her. So I wonder if any way that um, gave her the courage or the confidence to approach situations moving forward with that mindset that no, this is, you shouldn't actually um, respond to, um, to situations like this, to crimes with this overborn, disproportionate kind of outcome of, you know, yanking people out of the car, searching them, mm -hmm. patting them down, the ways that we see so many black men being treated. But mm -hmm. instead she has this mindset of, this is how the police can interact with um, with regular people, with everyday people in these everyday situations. Right. So um, what did you learn? What did I learn, Rhonda? And I also want to <laughs> add, add to this. <laughs> what did you learn? Yeah. <laughs> also, the, the microaggression of the fact that the passenger in the car was a white girl 
as opposed uh -huh. to a black girl or a black uh -huh. male or, or person. I also wonder about that. You know, yes, the zip code was a, a wealthy neighborhood, but if I wonder how much that played into that officer's decision to say, here's your pound of weed back, throw away your pipe, uh, sober up for a minute and go about your, your very way. But what did I learn, um, Rhonda? <laughs> <laughs> Of course you can. I learned a lot. I learned a lot. Um, I think two things that, that really stuck out for me that are not necessarily at the forefront of my work and what I do on a daily basis and in my role as, role as a father and, and, and citizen. <laughs> uh, <laughs> are you a citizen? You take that role seriously? I'm a citizen. Uh, hegemony uh -huh. and identity politics uh -huh. is not something that I often um, think about. Mm -hmm. uh, I have been a whole lot more in the past year or two or a little bit more, but it, it's, it's been interesting that in addition to reading the book, in addition to talking with Tongo at our last app project uh, uh, podcast conversation, um, and, to, and thinking of a lot of the posts and uh, work that David Johns does, who will, who will be speaking with soon, um, identity and hegemony um, are huge um, pieces of what I've been working in and around, but I've never really put those words onto them, and I will be using them a lot more. I hope. Uh, <laughs> oh, <shit. What? laughs> I, I hope that I hope our future uh, TDP posts don't get too saturated with those two words. Uh, <laughs> Hegemony and identity. Yeah. Hegemony. Yes, I've mis I, I, I mispronounced it too, but but the um, but it's good to have the vocabulary, and it's good, mm -hmm. and the way she's you know, perfectly articulates, and she's a great writer and a great communicator. The mm -hmm. way she communicated those two uh, two things, uh, I learned a lot from that. What about you, yeah. Rhonda? You, so hegemony is one of my favorite words because yeah. I feel like it just explains a lot. Like you just said, it's the context mm -hmm. in which we're operating, and we just don't even know it, particularly right. when we think about cultural hegemony and mm -hmm. what's expected of people in American culture. Like when you think about Hollywood or music or art, you can see just Western hegemony all over the place. Right. And in a way, um, it's suffocating. But when you also see a different culture coming onto the scene, it can feel refreshing. Mm -hmm. It can feel like a beautiful challenge to this dominant narrative of how things are supposed to look like. What does stereotypical beauty look like? What does music sound like? What does, mm -hmm. what do speech patterns sound like? Right. So when we bring that different flavor, it's like, oh, wow, this is actually amazing. I really appreciate that. I, I, um, it's enlivening and enlightening. Um, but yeah, to your point about Garza being really able to articulate those things clearly, that is absolutely something that I learned and um, that I loved. And so because of her clear speech, I think I learned the practical steps of community organizing. So I've been involved in community work forever, like a volunteer project here or mm -hmm. participating in a community um, neighborhood association. Right. But that's not organizing. And mm -hmm. uh, it was a real light bulb moment when she explained organizing basically is talking with people who share your problem and then trying to do something about it. Yeah. She did the same thing when she explained what power is and how power is not just knowing what your problem is, but having a base of people to, um, to enact the view and the future that's, mm -hmm. that you want to see. 
um, when she talks about the first fight and how they were working together to um, to help residents who were being faced with this particular bill of $1,400 to move all of their electrical wire underground. And as she described how they immediately came together, thought about can residents actually afford this? Who do we need to approach? What are our demands? And how do we see, what's the change that we want to see and how do we go about getting it? I was like, right. yeah. I mean, it's so straightforward and it makes a lot of sense, but in our everyday lives, we may not have the steps and the vocabulary to actually uh, to do that. So that was one. And then, um, as she explains, coalition building was also something that I learned yeah. and found that to be really compelling. Um, and she even spoke to the experience that I've had here in DC growing up in a predominantly black city. Mm -hmm. I've always looked at our, um, our justice-seeking movements as being black and white. But she's like, no, you actually mm -hmm. need to be in coalition with people who are negatively impacted by um, our economic system and our democratic system. Mm -hmm. like, yeah, and segregation is a tool. It's one of those ways that the dominant, the hegemony has tried to weaken these movements by keeping people apart. Yeah. Um, she explained that, I was like, wow, that's pretty fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. The piece where, I was, where her organization joined up with the Nation of Islam uh, stood out for me. Speaking to your point, I mean, Nation of Islam, uh, the, the sexism that is uh, within the nation, uh, the uh, anti-queer uh, mindset that is within the nation, for those two things alone to exist, let alone other, other things that they disagree with to exist, for them to put those aside and to say, but wait, these are the one or two things that we agree on and this is what we want to push forward. How can we come together and make that happen? Um, and to do that, that that's that coalition building. It's what's amazing. Every, everyone can kind of figure out, okay, who's probably my friend? Who am I probably going to get along with? Let's okay, let's make some signs and go march together. But but who? But can you do that same thing with people who don't think almost exactly as you do? Mm -hmm. And and for her to for her to, when she spoke on that, that light bulbs started flashing uh, big time. Uh, and I, th I thought of think of the work of. Um, you know, the voter registration folks, and um, when we decide who who is it that we're we're aligning with to make things happen, mm -hmm. uh, if it's the same people you always align with, you're not going to grow. It's not really a movement. It's just yeah, yeah calling your friends. <laughs> but, you know, I think one thing that uh, we probably don't know enough about is the history of this multiracial coalition building and the different groups that Black Americans have aligned with over time. So for example, there's been strong alliances between Black people and um, Latinx communities, also among communities of Asian American, the Asian diaspora. And that really came to light most recently with the tragedy in Atlanta, where mm -hmm. folks were saying um, on social media that there needs to be more um, coalition building between those, our communities, but other folks, like, we've been there, mm -hmm. and we've been working together, but we just need to do more of it. Right, exactly. And we need to see more of it. So one commitment that I'm making moving forward is to be more active in this multiracial coalition building and to stretch more of myself to build these relationships across lines of difference, and not just difference in terms of gender and religious background, but within the Black community, but going beyond outside of the black community, outside of the female community, and building those relationships. Right. And it has to be purposely done, because, yeah. 
um, other things that you loved? Oh, what did I love? What did I write down about what I loved? <laughs> <laughs> um, I just, I kind of spoke to it earlier. I mean, she's, uh, black women are amazing. Um, but she broke it down to where, no, I'm, I don't have this special potion of black girl magic that I'm, you know, throwing around here and there. It's really about the work. It's really about the grassroots piece. It's really about building those coalitions. It's really about uh, stepping outside of this box that I'm used to and, and really doing something something special. And, I, I mean, the reason that we are talking about Elisa Garza's book now is because of the fact that the Black Lives Matter hashtag uh, took off and, and spread like wildfire. But there are times seven years of, later. Remember, it took seven years. It did take Black seven years, right? To actually become a hashtag and for people to to speak it and embrace it, because for so long mm -hmm. it wasn't. Remember, she wrote, she posted that in twenty thirteen. Right, but I I think that what I love is I want to purposely honor uh, those who are doing the work mm -hmm. without without having to have something have to have gone viral to, or to reach national prominence. Uh, so that, that's a matter of, I, I know I, I started teaching um, back in 99 and we would always bring, you know, throughout my teaching career and, and working within schools, we would always bring organizations to the school to, to, to talk about one thing or another, whether it be uh, voting rights or uh, sexual identity or uh, any slew of things. And all of those folks that came into that school building were community organizers of sorts. And they, that was their life's work. That was what they were committed to. And that's the same thing that Alicia Garza is, was committed to and has been committed to. And this just so happens that something, you know, seven years later, granted, uh, turned into a true international movement. Um, but I just love how she broke down that, no, it's not about the fact that what I do happened happen to go viral. It's about the fact that I've been putting the boots on the ground every day and working hard to make it happen. I love the intentionality behind what she did, but you said something interesting a moment ago that I wanted to ask. Does it sound like I'm interviewing you? Go ahead, Rhonda. Go ahead. Huh? <laughs> yeah, you're so nice. Um, but you said uh, that thing about black girl magic and like bottling it and sprinkling it mm -hmm. around. Can you say more about that? Because that's like a, an interesting perspective. Well, I mean, you know, you put on a, a nice dress. Ooh, girl, black girl magic. <laughs> yes, that's not, that's not that. But but uh, maybe I started a new diet. Maybe I'm being making more healthy moves with my life. Maybe I'm working out. Maybe I am uh, found found someone who makes dress perfectly to fit my body and, and took time to do that. That's not magic. That's something you put some work into it some kind of way. And then when I happen to see you and, and you look wonderful and I said, oh, girl, look at that black girl magic. Um, no, that's not what it is. It was a, a lot that went into this moment that you get to call black girl magic. And in saying that, I was, it's just the fact that black women are amazing, but it, they're amazing because of all the hard work they do. Uh, unfortunately, historically behind closed doors or without recognition. And I'm so glad that the recognition fell upon these three women who started the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, we'll talk, talk later how that was uh, uh, tempted to be thwarted. Um, but that's what I mean by that, I, if, I, if that's explaining it to your, to your question. Uh, 
a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I think, you know, I've heard other people mention that on social media to say it's not magic, it's work, and don't call mm. it magic as if it just appeared out of nowhere. So I was curious to learn more about it from from your perspective, from like the male perspective, the person who is hearing mm -hmm. it and occasionally saying it, but not necessarily walking in the female shoes right. when it's being said or having just that context of, of what this means and it being implied that, I think when we say that, we do acknowledge that there is work or we have this understanding that there is work behind it, mm -hmm. but don't always say that and instead just use that catchphrase to, yeah. to sum it all up. But you're right, um, spelling it out is important and recognizing yeah. that it is work and yeah, attention I'll, to detail and study and, and thoughtfulness. Yeah, not against the phrase. I know it's the name of some award show or something like that. But, mm -hmm. you know, everybody has a mother or an auntie or a close relative or a close family member who can be uh, described as you know, personifying black girl magic. But we know intimately that they are able to do that for a, a, a ton of reasons mm -hmm. that, that relate to the hard work and the perseverance and the overcoming uh, that they put into that, that those, those three words that get put on, that get to label all of those, all of that hard work. So mm -hmm. I still love the term, but you know. I think you just flex a little bit as a feminist. Oh, I'm perspective to say don't diminish this effort to it just happening out of thin air but mm -hmm. there was a lot of intentionality behind what I did and um, integrity strategery that made this happen you know just it wasn't just poof and dinner is on the table poof and you yeah. have children poof and I have this job yeah a gentleman will make folks think that black men are not uh, feminists but so many black men are feminists. You hear that black man just I love that. I love that. No, that's a really powerful perspective. And um, I think that Garza definitely would agree with that perspective. And the other important thing about it, by demystifying it and not saying that it's magic, um, allows people to see that we can do this too. So as mm -hmm. I was reading your book, I thought, oh, so if this is how you do it, then this means that I can choose to do this and mm -hmm. I can be engaged um, as in organizing work or in, um, in movement work. One of the things that I loved about, um, about this book was her depth of analysis and that she really embraces analysis and mm -hmm. um, that she looked really closely at our favorite first president, our forever president, um, President Obama, through the lens of his response to, um, to policing and mm -hmm. in a way called him out. And right. you know, the reason I think that's so important is um, it's, it holds him accountable and it shows that you know, he's human and isn't necessarily doing everything right just because he is the black president, the first black president, she looked carefully at his responses to um, the murder of Trayvon Martin and how he phrased um, how black men need to show up 
and then mm -hmm. he, he turned it into a politics of respectability versus an honest critique of policing in mm -hmm. the United States. And we haven't heard too much about that in the center. I know that a, there are a lot of voices that are critical of his policing, mm -hmm. but I think that those voices haven't been prominent because right. the media holds Obama in um, this rarefied air and certainly earning the one, winning a presidency and then winning the presidency as a black man and then doing it twice and then pushing through as much as he did when he did under those circumstances that he did. All of those are very incredible accomplishments, but we can't ignore the reality that his responses to these other situations weren't necessarily helpful to um, to really making a difference for for black men and in some way kind of set the stage for biden to then um well for trump we know to then embrace law enforcement as much as he did and then also for biden to say yeah we 100 percent are behind law enforcement and to not have a critical view of how they're responding to to policing across the united states and to encourage more young black men to trust the police mm -hmm. yeah yeah not, yeah, not cool. Yeah, it's, it's um, you know, for me to personally speak, to have a, a zip code like Alicia Garza had, where if, if I do something and they see my zip code, I might get a slight pass, even, even as a black man. But knowing that the majority of our uh, black uh, brothers and sisters don't live in, in certain zip codes that would get that pass, um, to, to default to a respectability politics stance, on anything that relates to law enforcement or policing is um, is, is is a cop out to uh, uh, what is that a, to say cop out? What is it? What did I just do? <laughs> but, but that is not. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> oh, all types of words. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, I don't want to uh, delve too far to, to uh, federal politics, but. Uh -huh. But yes, um, I agree with you there. <clears throat> and he wasn't the only person that she called out either. I really appreciate that she called out um, a few of the establishment actors as well, folks who have been in the movement for a really long time and certainly have their place where they've earned respect and they have earned um, a certain stature, but mm -hmm. their approach isn't necessarily the most effective anymore. And so she called out uh, Jesse Jackson and she called out Al Sharpton for the traditional yeah. show up, give a speech, make a pitch for funding, but not mm -hmm. have real deep roots or ties in the community and not necessarily look to the young organizers to acknowledge yeah. the work that they were doing to build power and to build coalition. Mm -hmm. um, and instead looked at, well, you know, they did that typical pull your pants up and um, respect the police and, you know, they they had a, an approach that may have been effective in the 70s and 80s, but yeah. today doesn't really advance a truly liberatory agenda. And so her calling that out so clearly, I think, paves the way for other people to continue to just look at these situations objectively. And mm -hmm. it's certainly not to minimize their work or to unduly criticize them. Yeah. But we do have to look at the tactics that are being used and have an honest assessment and say, is this still working for us? Yeah. And the answer clearly is no. Yeah, and we get, you know, we get further removed. I mean, I love the shirt you're wearing. Um, but oh, everyone, yeah, every, everyone can't wear that shirt, though. A lot of folks, <laughs> <laughs> everyone gets a few degrees and it, it, it may fool them. It may make them fools, rather. 
you say don't let the degrees fool you, and that's the, that's the stance we have to have in order to not um, fall into respectability politics. But, uh, <laughs> but a lot of folks get those get those degrees and do become fools and get further removed from, and that's why there's such a disparity and there's such a gap and such a bridge between uh, marginalized folks, black folks, uh, folks of color, poor folks, and you know, people in a position like a Jesse Jackson or or a president of the United States, because for one, it is literally a huge gap. And for two, uh, if you haven't, you know, walked in the shoes of of those people that you are representing in so long or frequently visited those environments that they are living in in so long or ever, then all you can default to is some silly respectability politic uh, answer. Mm -hmm. um, I love, um, that's, that's one of the reasons why I love uh, Nipsey Hussle's work so much. And I love Toby, whose name I never can get right, Toby from the SWAT out of Houston. <laughs> I love his work so much because uh, I think they are, you know, in the, in the hip hop and, and media and, and music realm of things. They are, they did uh, uh, rest in peace to Nipsey Hussle, but, and Toby is currently, uh, you know, pushing back on, that, on those politics. I want to give a shout out to Uncle Bobby's bookstore in Philadelphia where I got my shirt. It's a dope shirt. Don't let these things <laughs> I'll cut you. <laughs> um, anything else that you want to say about the book before we close out? Ah, oh, what else? What else? Maybe go through my notes, Rhonda. Let me see what else. Yeah, while you do that, um, what I found surprising as I was reading along was that DeRay McKesson tried to claim credit for some yeah. of his work and was like yeah. going around and telling people that he was responsible for some aspect of Black Lives Matter as a movement growing and then didn't step back, didn't apologize, didn't acknowledge that. Um, didn't even acknowledge the, head, uh, the tweet, the original tweet. Someone accredited him for the original tweet and he didn't even push back on that until... I think there was a, a, a rising of folks letting him know he needed to put to uh, you know tell folks to take that down, and they and finally did. But yeah, that that speaks to the sexism. That speaks to uh, even though he's a gay black man, you know, identities there away from being a, a, a white man, which is the dominant uh, culture. Um, still, the sexism is there, and and we that often happens. Um, this being the DAP project, uh, people are assuming that I originally came up with the idea for that project, but it was indeed you, Rhonda. Uh, give a shout, out, shout out to Rhonda Henderson for uh, bringing the that project to be. Um, but, that, but that is in the mindsets of, of um, society that we assume that if it's not a white male that started it, that it is, that it, then it is a male that started it uh, before a woman could have done such. So, um, I was, yeah, I was disheartened, and, and as you just mentioned earlier, that I do have—I am a feminist. So for me to have read that, it was very disheartening and disappointing to know um, that that is the way he approached things. Because I did not—I've heard the rumors and the and hearsays here and there, but to actually read it from Alicia's voice um, was very disheartening. Um, and I'm sure it reminds it me of um, her discussion of intersectionality. That um, one, she says, people throw the word around without really and use it improperly, and mm -hmm. so she's really helpful in defining intersectionality, crediting 
Professor Kimberly Crenshaw with coining the phrase and then explaining that it's looking at issues through multiple lenses of identity and that we have multiple identities and that we can um, endure oppression or other forms of discrimination just based on those identities. And I think to your point about sexism, that that's an example of intersectionality and looking at how within um, a community, within an ethnic group of Black people, we can still experience um, some form of discrimination or a diminishment of our work because, mm -hmm. you know, we're still women. And yeah. it makes me think of, you know, that that frequent quote that uh, Malcolm X says that the, you know, the most hated woman, the most oppressed person is the Black woman. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit more nuance to that quote than just that. But that's what, um, what comes to mind. Um, and then it also makes us think about then, what do you have to do to be authentic as a leader to, to your community? And can you be an authentic leader and still engage in, um, let's say, media presence? So Zeray has a million followers on, um, on Twitter and a podcast, which I frequently listen to, um, a deal with Patagonia. Mm -hmm. And so I think a question that, that people have, and probably people who are you know, much more involved in movement work than I am, is how effective can you be as um, as a community organizer if you still have this this different level of platform and engagement in mainstream culture? Like, how liberal can you be? How progressive can you be? How can, how much can you push the envelope? Yeah, well, you, you, your platform can be uh, seeking celebrity. That can be your platform, and that that is the platform of so many. Folks these days, they want to go viral. They want to come up with the coolest tweet. Uh, when I post something on our Instagram, I wanted to get a lot of likes. This is natural. Something that, what is it? Yeah. I forget. I forget it's, I'm a psychologist. Endorphins, right? Yeah, endorphins. Yeah. yeah endorphins. Everybody wants everybody wants their endorphins triggered. Right. <laughs> but but that does not make a movement. That is not no. that is not coalition building. That is not the purpose of power. And that is what Alicia Garza did. She let us know. She let us know what the purpose of power is. You know, bringing it home, bringing yeah. it home. Right. Yeah, so. yeah. That was um, the next thing that we were going to talk about. Is you know, so now that we've read this book, uh, the purpose of power. What is the purpose of power? So you know, to your point, I would add to that the purpose of power is to listen and to build. So it's to listen to your community, to. Um, understand what other people are experiencing. I think she did a great job of addressing some of the biases and even the racism that we can experience within marginalized communities, mm -hmm. that Black people can say things that are not cool about other ethnic groups, and they can mm -hmm. do the same thing about Black people. And we've certainly heard that um, I won't go into the examples, but we certainly have heard examples of other ethnic groups, you know, sniping at each other, being um, racist, using slurs towards each other. And her approach was to ask, okay, so why, why do you feel that way? Or what leads you to think that? So to express empathy mm -hmm. instead of immediately harping and criticizing or deciding that we can no longer be in, in relationship because you hold these racist views. 
But if we take a step back and think about um, one, that it's not cool and we're all in this together. So let's figure out how we can work through that so we can have a more united front against the much larger, much more challenging enemy that we all share, which is hegemony to use your favorite word today and the, the capitalist project. Listen, I'm for it. I am absolutely perplexing right. on hegemony. <laughs> I think that is absolutely <laughs> the way to go right. into spring 2021. <laughs> Dismantle the hegemony. I totally agree. I totally agree. <laughs> um, so the Quote, when I was uh, reading, trying to prepare mm -hmm. uh, for our TDPB reading, um, the quote I like is, a just reckoning isn't a simple shift in who gets to oppress whom. It will come when those who have been used to, have been used to unparalleled power must reckon with what it means to distribute power more equally. Um, so I, I think... You know, that's a big piece. We always talk about, uh, woke folks always talking about oppression Olympics. Um, uh, I'm oppressed, you oppress, who's more oppressed? But, but that's not what it's about. It's about the folks who, who, who have unparalleled power. How do they reckon with sharing some of that with others? Um, so it's not the oppressed folks to, to need, that need to be fighting. The folks who have the power need to be, need to be determining how they can share the power or empower those who are oppressed. So that's, that's what I see as a purpose. Uh, as, a, as a huge iceberg to chip at, and we'll continue to chip at it uh, with our little chisels, but that is the iceberg uh, that needs to be dis dissolved. Yeah. I think that's the perfect note to, um, to end on. So what will TDP be reading next? Well, we mentioned Nipsey Hussle. Um, we did. Um, this world has nearly been without Nipsey Hussle's uh, energy, movement, uh, genius, uh, community organizing for almost two years. I think I, it, we're looking at it in another two days was uh, two years since he, he was taken away from the world. But I, we do want to honor him. And we do want to uh, read more about his life and know more about his life, uh, short of what is in his uh, incredible music and some of the many things that we've heard about him over the past two years. So we want to read The Marathon, Don't Stop. We know the, the Marathon Continues is, is attached to Nipsey Hussle's legacy, but The Marathon, Don't you Stop. You got it already? Come on, Rhonda. To me, I got it already. You know I got it already. <laughs> the Marathon, Don't Stop, The Life and Times of Nipsey Hussle. Uh, by Rob Kenner. So we're going to check this book out for the month of Mar uh, April, for the month of April. And we will uh, be posting when our next TDP book talk is. I'm, I don't have my calendar in front of me. It What's, will be April the 25th. April 25th. April 25th. April 25th. So Sunday, April 25th at 5 p.m. And Aaron, where should we buy our books? You should buy it at a Black-owned bookstore. Absolutely, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Mahogany Books. Yeah. Uncle Bobby's, Harriet's Bookstore, um, yeah. Malik Books in LA, Semicolon, I think, mm -hmm. in Chicago. Um, there are a couple other places. There's this other cool uh, bookstore in Raleigh, North Carolina. It's not black owned, but the owner is really cool. His name, um, I don't know his name actually, but the bookstore is called So and So's Books mm -hmm. in Raleigh, North Carolina. Really cool dude. 
um, it's a great conversation that we had when I was down there. So that's another option. Um, yeah, yeah, put your, yeah, local, local black home bookstore. Yeah, in DC, yeah. Solid State Books is mm -hmm. a great bookshop to shop from. East City Books on Pennsylvania mm -hmm. Avenue in DC is also another good look. Yeah. So, well, this yeah. was a great book talk. I'm so glad that we enjoyed it, that we learned a lot from it, and we're going to continue building on um, on our knowledge over the course of the, the couple months as TDP keep reading. So catch us on IG. What's our IG handle again? project. Everyone That's watching this, should know that since this is IG Live, but, <laughs> but we, we, we might broadcast it somewhere else at some point. So. <laughs> and online, we're at thatproject.com. Yes. Please like and subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, right? Yes, check us out on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Um, and check out the website. We post all of our podcasts on the website as well that'll take you straight to those two to Apple and, and Spotify. So thedapproject.com. Check us out. And with that, resistance is a highway with many lanes. We hope you find yours. Take care, folks. Peace.